What are we looking at here is a film review podcast. There will be significant spoilers in every episode, so if you haven't seen the movies I'm discussing, please do pause here and go see them before continuing. I talk about all kinds of films and all kinds of topics, so some content may not appeal to you. You can check out the content warnings in the show notes and decide if this episode is right for you. What are we looking at here? Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. Today we're looking at Waiting for Rescue and how the movies compare to real life. Let's start with The Mist. Not the written story, but the movie. I will be spoiling the very, very end of this movie, so if you would rather watch it first, you should stop listening until you've had the chance to see it. The main character in The Mist, David, decides that it would be better for his child, Billy, to be dead quickly and mercifully than to be picked apart by the horrible things that are lurking in the mist. David isn't making a choice that others haven't made before, both in film and in real life, but he seems unwilling to consider that there might be a rescue. He's sure the horrible mist creatures have somehow already won, that nothing anyone does can stop them, and that no one is coming to help him or Billy. So he might as well get it over with now. He kills Billy, just as the military appears with other survivors from the very place that David and Billy had just left. David realizes he's killed his son for no reason. He doesn't bother to take his own life, preferring for whatever reason to live through the devastation of losing his son in the most unnecessary and wretched way possible. We've started with the mist because David does not wait for rescue. He doesn't even believe in rescue. And because David neither waits nor believes, Billy is lost, and David is left shattered and alone. Let's compare that to some other films, where people do wait for rescue. We'll begin with The Last of the Mohicans. Nathaniel Poe has to leave the girl, Cora, to capture because he knows he can do more for her if he comes at her captors from the outside, on the sly. He also knows he can go a lot faster without Cora and her sister in tow, and that if the girls are found with him, they'll be more likely to be killed than if they're discovered on their own. Basically, Nathaniel is running away, running away, living to save his girlfriend another day. But he doesn't particularly want to leave his girlfriend to capture, and he tells her with the force of every fiber of his being, Stay alive, whatever occurs. I will find you. He does find her. He does rescue her. They totally live another day. But what did Cora feel before that? What did it mean to her that Nathaniel promised to come for her? She had no reason to doubt his plan or his intentions. It wasn't his bravery or his determination that was in question. It was the odds, the unknowns, all the things her captors might potentially do to her before Nathaniel can reach her. 
They could assault her, rape her, kill her, torture her in a thousand ways before Nathaniel has time to circle around and break her out. What if something happens to her that she doesn't want to live through? Any of these fears are certainly justified, but she decides to focus on her faith in Nathaniel's intentions, that he is coming to save her and that she shouldn't give up. So she doesn't give up. Even as she and her sister are led away by men who want to murder them, she stays calm. She stays vigilant. She does not despair. She has no idea if Nathaniel will be able to get to her in time, or if he'll be able to do anything against such a formidable foe. But if he does reach her, she'll be ready. She won't decide in advance that Nathaniel's going to fail. And she doesn't shoot Billy, David. She doesn't shoot little Billy. She's not the only one who doesn't shoot Billy. In The Matrix, Morpheus is captured by Agent Smith and interrogated. You know, with torture. It looks bad. It looks really painful. And frankly, in a world where everything is just a digital recreation, why would you necessarily not talk? Is any of it going to matter? Especially when the people torturing you can just reset the scene again and again, torturing you maybe forever, manipulating your reality? Why wouldn't you talk? But Morpheus doesn't talk. He endures the torture until his friends can save him. Much like Cora, Morpheus has no idea if his friends know where he is or if they can rescue him or when. But he knows that they'll be looking for him, that they won't stop looking until they find him, and that they'll do whatever they can to save him. So even though he's in terrible pain and reaching his limits, he doesn't despair. He doesn't decide in advance that his rescuers will fail. Of course, as much as I wish with my whole being that David hadn't shot little Billy, David's situation was not like Cora's or Morpheus's. Cora and Morpheus had reason to believe that at the very least someone was intending to save them. David didn't think anyone was coming. He really didn't. It's a little easier to stay alive whatever occurs when someone has promised to come and get you. And if you really don't think anyone's coming to get you, and your fate looks pretty horrifying, it's perhaps the best choice to make your end, and your child's end, as merciful as possible. Maybe, hmm, maybe we're being a little too hard on David. Let's ponder that while we look at someone in the opposite situation. John Rambo in First Blood, Part 2. David didn't expect rescue, and then it arrived. John Rambo expected rescue, and then it didn't arrive. Or more properly, and more horribly, rescue arrived, came almost close enough to touch, and then left again without rescuing anyone. John, a man who's already been abandoned by his government a time or two, would have been perfectly justified in giving up. He certainly has no reason to think that a group who had already betrayed him even as he was climbing up the hill to the landing zone, would go out of their way to come back again. But he doesn't give up. He doesn't despair. In fact, he becomes even more determined to escape and to save all the other men whose only chance of rescue is John. Does the rescue chopper ever come back for them? No, it does not. John is right about the intentions of the group who double-crossed him. 
He's right about them not wanting to save the POWs. He has to orchestrate the rescue on his own. So John's situation is what David only thinks his situation to be. The army saves David, but they're not going to save John. Still, even though the rescue that, quote, arrives for John is the one he fashions for himself, John still waits for that rescue. He doesn't give up hope. He stays alive, whatever occurs, until he sees a way out of his predicament. In an earlier podcast, we looked at Emma in No One Lives, at how her captured driver gaslights her into believing that she can't escape. She's pretty certain no one is looking for her in any way that would allow them to find her. She has no reason to hope at all, but she hopes anyway. She stays vigilant for any opportunity, and when that opportunity comes, she takes advantage of it to save her own life. She still wants her life back. She never lets go of that, no matter how dire her situation gets. Bart Allen shares Emma's commitment to survival. He shows up in Justice, an episode of TV's Smallville, wherein he's captured by Lex Luthor and put into a diabolical contraption, a cylindrical container with an electrified floor. Bart, a.k.a. The Flash, has to run and keep running to avoid being electrocuted by the floor. He doesn't know if anyone's coming or if they even know he's been captured. He just runs, forever, just trying to stay alive as long as he can. Of course, Clark Kent is on his way and saves Bart from the diabolical contraption, but Bart didn't know that was going to happen. Bart was just running because he didn't want to die. And no matter how tired he got or how hard it became to keep moving, he did it anyway because he didn't want to die. Would he eventually find some way to escape? I suppose he might have thought that was a possibility for some plan to occur to him or for something to shift enough that he could break out of the container. But mostly he just didn't want to die. He stayed alive, whatever occurred. Because if rescue was coming, then he wanted to be there for it. He was willing to wait for it and hope for it until the very, very end, until something finally killed him. Earl explains it best in Tremors. As the gang debates risking their lives to escape the Graboids, or staying on the rocks where they'll die of thirst in three days. Val thinks they should risk their lives, but Earl says, I want to live for the three days. It turns out Val's way is the best way, but Earl's sentiment reflects the difference between all these other characters we've discussed and the Mist's poor, impatient David. Life matters enough to squeeze every second out of it, and giving up before the end guarantees that there won't be a rescue. So far we've been looking at fictional rescues in fictional stories, but real people find themselves in need of rescue all the time. Sometimes that rescue isn't coming. Maybe no one knows the person is in danger. Maybe the risk to the rescuer would be too great. Maybe there's just no way to get to them. Even when we know someone needs saving, we don't always get there in time. We see it every day in the news. People who are lost in the woods, children who are lost to a cruel caretaker, car crashes, earthquakes, snake bites. People need help. 
and they don't always get it in time. Maybe that's why waiting for rescue is such an important theme in movies, why we watch anxiously as Nathaniel catches up to Cora, as Morpheus is saved, as John Rambo leads POWs to freedom. Maybe that's why it's so important for Emma to stay hopeful, why it's so emotional to watch Bart Allen running. Because we, the audience, want to feel, if only for a moment, that hope will be rewarded, that vigilance will make opportunity appear. We want to feel that we should stay alive whatever occurs, because someone is coming. There are so many times in the real world when rescue is too late, when no one knew or cared or tried. We want to believe that it doesn't have to be like that. Maybe that's why I'm so irritated with David. When real-life rescue is often impossible, it's extremely irksome to watch a fictional character, whose world can be whatever he chooses, give up when he doesn't have to. Sorry, David. I'll speak for little Billy here. You should have waited. And I think some real-life survivors would agree with me. Survivors like Aaron Ralston, for instance whose arm was trapped under a boulder after a rock slide in Utah in 2003, and who eventually severed that arm after being stuck there for five days. His story is told in the movie 127 Hours, and one of the things he said into his video recorder was that no one knew where he was. He wasn't going to be found because no one would ever be looking. Not because they didn't care but because this was the way that Aaron had always run his life, never really telling anyone where he was going, or even having a plan himself. Much like Emma and Bart, Aaron had to decide to keep going, to stay alive and hopeful as long as possible, and to watch for any chance of escape. Much like John Rambo, Aaron had to create his own rescue. Unlike those fictional characters, though, Aaron is a real man who actually faced death and actually saved his own life. To endure such a thing, to make the decision to amputate his arm, is mind-boggling. To see that kind of determination paralleled in fictional characters like Cora and Rambo and Bart is one of the things that makes storytelling so important. But what about Earl's life-affirming stance that whatever might come his way, he would like to survive as long as possible? It sounds very sensible. To survive as long as possible is exactly why, when we're in danger, we want to be rescued. But in real life, that willingness to stay, metaphorically speaking, on a cluster of rocks until we die of thirst, does that actually get us anywhere? Real life can be really disappointing. When is it too much? When do we decide that we aren't the Flash or John Rambo, that Nathaniel isn't coming to find us in the eleventh hour, that living a little longer won't really be any better than giving up now? Let's look at a pretty extreme real-life example of needing rescue, the sinking of the USS Indianapolis in 1945. The Indianapolis had just finished a top-secret mission to deliver material for the atomic bomb. Because of this, when she was struck by torpedoes and went down off the coast of Japan, no one knew she was out there, 
and so no one would be looking for her. The crew sent out an SOS, but since she wasn't slated to be out there, the recipient of the SOS wisely theorized that it could be a Japanese trick, and so no aid was dispatched. Hundreds of men went into the water, in the dark. They were burned. They were treading water, exhausted, surrounded by sharks. They had no food or drinking water. They dwindled in numbers by the hour, from their injuries, from shark attack, from drowning. The ones who survived were spread out over several square miles. They couldn't even cluster together for solidarity. They were sure no one was coming, and even if someone did come, how would they find them in the vast, dark expanse of the Pacific Ocean? The night ended, the next day ended, another night, another day. Nearly four days they floated in the water, watching their crewmates die, watching sharks circle, becoming delirious from thirst and from drinking seawater. They were waiting to die. They could have given up at any moment and let the ocean take them. Then a pilot, quite by chance, saw them. He sent rescue planes and ships that saved 316 men. Truly, if you were out there in that water, in the cold, in the dark, in the sharks, burned, delirious, hopeless, if you were out there knowing that even if somebody looked for you, they would never see you, how long would you make it? Why would you bother? Why would you go through that for any reason other than wanting to squeeze those last three days out of life? So, do we watch John Rambo and Cora because we want to know how to feel if we're ever dumped into the Pacific Ocean? Do we appreciate Earl because without his words we might not value our own lives? No. No, we may be guided by Cora's example to have faith in our Nathaniels, we may be encouraged by Rambo's determination to persevere against our own adversity. But their situations are pretty far removed from our regular experiences. We appreciate Earl's words precisely because we do value our lives, and we already know exactly where he's coming from. Waiting for rescue and being rescued aren't things we put in stories to teach. They're things we put in stories to appreciate. We value rescue. We value hope and determination and faith and perseverance. We value those last precious seconds as much as all the seconds that came before. Characters in stories believe in rescue, wait for rescue, are rescued, because we know how wonderful rescue is in real life. We know what it means to Cora that someone will be looking for her even if he can't get to her. We're touched by Bart Allen running for his life because we comfort our own despair with that same silent hope. We put rescue in our stories because it doesn't happen in real life as often as we'd like. But when it does, it is so, so amazing. We want to feel that without having to be in danger ourselves. We want to honor the people who held on until rescue came. We want to honor the ones who did everything they could to save others, even if they couldn't do enough. We want to honor the Carpathia for violating the laws of physics to race to the Titanic. 
We want to honor the 316 men who survived the Indianapolis and the pilots who pulled those men out of the water. We want to live for the three days. We want to stay alive, whatever occurs. We want to be looked for. We want to save ourselves. We want to save others. We put rescue in our stories because rescue equals life. It equals hope. And since real life hardly ever goes the way we'd rather, hope of rescue might be the only thing that keeps us going. Is it unbelievable that John Rambo saved POWs with the power of his biceps and his mighty anger? Probably. Is it unbelievable that a random pilot saw the crew of the Indianapolis floating in the ocean hundreds of feet below him when he wasn't even looking? Definitely. But he did see them, and he did save them. Their hope was warranted. Our hope is warranted. We put hope and rescue in our stories because these things are real. And that's why I'm so disappointed in David. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoyed it, please spread the word. If you want to check out my other content, you can visit my website at www.smrcooper.com. I hope you have a good week and that things go your way. And if you get a chance, watch a movie.